Well, the day has finally arrived in which I will tell you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. John's Gospel is the fourth Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. And I hope that you are half as excited as I am to begin this marvelous book. Uh, I have preached through many books here at Christ Church. We are in our 16th year of ministry here. And I had it when I first arrived that I would wait to tackle some of the, the giant books, the, almost the canon within the canon. So it was a very long period of time, perhaps 10 years before I dared take on Genesis. And then a few years went on before I dared take on Romans. And now having done that, we come to a mountain peak book, the Gospel of John. And so we're going to be looking this morning at the first five verses. We are not going to complete our study of these verses today. Talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but we are going to do our best to learn what the Lord has us to learn in this text. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray that the Lord would add his blessing to it. O Lord our God. Lord, we come fearfully to your word. For we know that your word is the place of life and truth. And we so long, O oh Lord, to know more of our Lord Jesus Christ from your word. But more than that, we seek more than knowledge, Lord. We seek the ability to tell others of Jesus, of his work and his kingdom. Lord, do not ever allow us to be satisfied with merely learning and adding knowledge. But light a fire in us to bring the gospel of Christ's kingdom to our family members, our neighbors, co-workers, friends, and even throughout all the earth. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. John's Gospel is one of the best known and most beloved books of all of the Bible. I imagine that if you have been a believer in church for some period of time, that you have had a Bible study, or at another church, the pastor preached a sermon series through John, or, or selected sermons through John. 
it is one of the most important books of the Bible, and we know that because we long to understand it. There are four accounts of the gospel. <coughs> this is not John's gospel. It is the gospel according to John. And there are not four gospels that are different. There are rather four testimonies to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have Matthew's eyewitness account. We have Mark's story that he learned mostly from Peter. We have Luke's historical investigation in which he, in an orderly fashion, puts together the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And then we have John. John is likely the last written of the Gospels, perhaps as early as the 80s A.D., perhaps as late as the early 90s A.D. It was written, we think, from the text itself, to evangelize the Greco-Roman world. It was written after Paul and Silas and Barnabas and all of the other Christian missionaries had gone throughout the Roman Empire. They had been to Greece. They had been to Italy. They had been to very many places. And so John's gospel is well-suited to tell Jesus' story for intellectuals, for people without a Jewish background, those who don't know the Old Testament, although there's plenty of Old Testament in John, we'll see. John's gospel is unique in its perspective, not in its content. John differs from the other three gospels that are often called the synoptic gospels. And synoptic is just a transliteration for viewing things the same way. You go to an optician, you have optics, you're seeing. And to have it synoptic means it's looking together with each other from the same perspective. John's gospel, rather, gives us a different perspective. Matthew, for example, takes us all the way back to Abraham in telling the story of Jesus. And then Luke goes back farther still to Adam himself. But John... John goes back before all creation, before there was time itself. John goes back before the beginning, and he shows us that Jesus was there. It is a unique and necessary perspective for us to have. John is a profound book. Martin Luther, who is the fount of many Memorable sayings put it this way. He said, if a tyrant should manage to destroy all of the Bible, but left copies of Paul's epistle to the Romans and the gospel of John, Christianity would be saved. It contains so much of what we need to come to saving faith and to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus. John's gospel has been described as a pool a pool that is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. It, is, it contains some of the greatest truths in all of the Bible, and we will explore them through this series. But the purpose of the book and the subtitle of this sermon series, if you have seen it, is that you may believe 
Spoiler alert, John tells us his purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these are written, that is the book is written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John's purpose, not just in history, but for you today. We will be spending a great deal of time in this book. I don't know exactly how long. I estimate perhaps at least three years with breaks. Could be just under a hundred sermons. And, and to give you an idea of how difficult it is to move quickly through John, I'm not even going to get through our text today. I have three points. You're going to get one. And you'll get the following two next week. Because after all, we're not going to rush through something as important as this. And so I hope that this journey is a blessing to you and your life in Christ. But we begin here with a prologue. That's what the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are called. These first 18 verses introduce the rest of the book. They tell us what we will read in the book. There are themes that are struck here, themes of life and light, and the Word, and flesh, and children of God, and seeing God, and believing on God, and becoming His children, all are found condensed in this prologue. It has often been compared to an overture that begins a musical performance in which there are hints and notes of all that will be played in the performance in that initial overture to get you excited for what is to come, to get you encouraged, to get your attention. That's what John has done for us here in these first 18 verses. There is rhythm in our text, even a sense of poetry to it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You can almost hear the cadence of poetry in this. Unless you think that our translators have beautified this text, it has a very similar cadence, rhythm, and poetry in the original Greek. John is doing this intentionally to draw us in. And so this week, and the three weeks following, we will look at this prologue. It describes the one who has come to earth, who has come to be with us, to bring life and light, to claim his people for himself, and to bring grace and truth. And so this week and next week, we're going to see three things from this first five verses. First, today we will see the divine word in verses one and two and a bit of three. And then second, next week we will see the life-giving word in verses 3 and 4. And then finally we will see the light-bringing word in verse 5. The divine word, the life-giving word, and the light-bringing word. Well, let's begin then to look at Jesus, the divine word as we open the gospel, our first question should be, so who is this Jesus? That's the question that each gospel answers. It's what makes the gospels different from the Pauline epistles or from the prophetic writings of the New or the Old Testament. 
The Gospels are designed to introduce us to Jesus. His character, His life, His works, and His teaching. And so it's no exception here that that is the question that we come to the Gospel of John with. And the very first thing we see about this Jesus is that He is the eternal God. Now, one thing you will notice is that John delays giving us his name. You can look down and it's not until verse 17 that we read that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Up until that point, we don't have Jesus' name. It's as if John wants us to see that there is so much more to Jesus before his birth. Matthew and Luke both start with his birth. But John says, you can't understand the significance of the incarnation until you know who Jesus really is. And so he builds up our sense of anticipation in this prologue. You may know a bit of what this is like if you are a fan of the Lord of the Rings. The books, not the movies. Because in the books we are introduced to a man who meets our main characters, the hobbits, in an inn. He's sitting in a smoky inn, eating and drinking. Doesn't look like much. He's got a stained cloak. He's quiet. He's in the dark. And our main characters come in, and they can't imagine this is the man they're supposed to meet. He doesn't even have an interesting name. He's called Strider. Who is this man? But yet... As the story unfolds, we don't find out finally and fully until the end of the last book that this man is not Strider. He is the great high king, Aragorn. There is a sense here, and that's what John is doing for us. He's starting out telling us of Jesus without really telling us about Jesus. He's building our anticipation. We know this figure is a Wonderful figure. We know this figure is the eternal God. And then he will let us know who exactly this person is. The book begins in verse 1, in the beginning. And that is not a throwaway. That is not the beginning of scrolling credits a very long time ago in a galaxy far away. No. There is fundamental significance in these first three words in the English. As soon as you hear, in the beginning, you should be thinking about something. You should be thinking about the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, that also begins in the beginning. We call it Genesis, but you do know that in John's day, and even to this day, in Israel, in Hebrew culture, they don't name the first five books of the Bible the way we do, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What they do is they take the first words of the book, and that becomes the name of the book. And so what we call Genesis, the Hebrews called Bereshit, which means in the beginning. That's what that book is, in the beginning. In fact, the Greek translation of Genesis, the Septuagint, opens with the exact same two Greek words that John opens his gospel with. En arche, in the beginning. 
the very first thing that we learn in the book of Genesis about God is that He is. Before we're told about anything He's created, or anything He has done, or anything He has said, we are told first and foremost that God is. Before the creation account, before a description of man, before anything He's done, what we learn is that God exists. God ever was, ever is, and ever will be. In the beginning, God is what Moses tells us in Genesis. Do you see how the Bible has an otherworldly divine focus? It starts with God, not us. It starts with the God who is, not with our problems. Not because we're unimportant, but because we can only know who we are and the needs we have in relationship to the God who exists. And John wants us to see this. So instead of God, we have in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, He already was. The language here is deliberate. John uses a tense of a verb that means he was in the past and continues in the present. Think about that. Before all creation, before time itself, before the very beginning, the Word was. The Word is eternal. He has no beginning and He has no end. He is utterly unlike us. He is God Himself. He is the Word, John says. And perhaps you wonder why John is using this name for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is He called the Word? He could have said, in the beginning was Jesus. Or in the beginning was Christ. But he specifically uses this word, Word. It is a famous philosophical term especially in Greek culture. Remember I told you that John wrote this gospel in part to evangelize the known world, the Greek-speaking world. And you know this word for word, even if you don't know a lick of Greek. The word for word in Greek is logos. Some of you have attended school at a school called logos. All of you are familiar with the concept of logic. That's where we get logic from. The Greek philosophers thought of the logos as the controlling and organizing principle of the universe. And so, for example, you have an ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. And his famous principle was, you can never step into the same river twice. Now you ask, why is that true? Because once you step in the river and step out, the water flows on, and you step back in again, and the river has changed. And as a matter of fact, you've changed. Everything has changed. Now, people asked him, well, how does things stay in order if everything's in constant change and flux? And his answer was the Logos. The animating, dominating principle in the world. There was another Greek philosopher who took an op opposite tack who said everything is the same all the time. What you see as being different is just your mind playing tricks on you. Everything is the same. Well, how do we exist 
when everything is the same, when we see children grow up and, and men get gray hair that falls out, how do we know that the world has order? And the answer was the logos, the animating principle of the world. But the truth is that the logos is not rooted in Greek philosophy. It's rooted in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God spoke nine times in the work of creation. His speaking made it so. There was nothing else that God had to do. He spoke and the sun and the moon came into existence. He spoke and the dry land rose up and created the earth. He spoke and the fish and the birds and the animals came into existence. He spoke and there was man. So John is reminding us that Jesus was in the beginning. And he is the one who has created all things. Jesus is God. It is inescapable from our text that the word is, is God. John will not let us miss it. He makes it clear in case we missed it at the end of verse 1, the word was God. He tells us, not that the Word became God. He was God. He uses that same verb at the end of verse 1 that he uses at the beginning of verse 1, was. That verb that is a to-be verb that implies something that was and is now. Jesus was God, and now He is God still. When you think about Jesus, is this what comes to your mind? Or do you think about the baby in the manger? Or a good teacher? Or a wonderful example of how you should live? John tells you not to consider any of that until you have come face to face with Jesus as the eternal God. Well, John goes on further to describe Jesus the Word. When we read that the Word was God, we might be tempted to think that it's just God under another name. After all, the Old Testament is filled with names for God. God is called Deliverer, the Rock, the Lord, the Almighty. Perhaps we might think that's just what John is doing here. He's giving us another name for God, and that name happens to be the Word. No. Absolutely not. John tells us that not only was the Word God, the Word was with God. Do you see that in verse 1? The Word was with God. He was in the beginning in verse 2. With God. So the Word was God, is God, but He is also distinct from God because He is with God. You know, one commentator says, you can be by yourself, but you can't be with yourself. And that's what John is telling us here. And even more interestingly, the preposition that he uses for with here does not mean beside or next to. You know, when I go to dinner with my wife, we go and we sit next to each other at the table. We are together. But the word with here has a sense of direction, of motion, of action. John is saying that there is a relationship here. There is a closeness between the Word and God. It's not just that they're in the same proximity. 
They are eternally in relationship with each other. In fact, he repeats it twice, once in verse 1 and once in verse 2. He does not want us to miss it, just like he repeats in the beginning twice. Now let me ask you, is there any parent here who has never had to repeat themselves? You know, if you're anything like me, you might be surprised that not only does John repeat himself so we get it, I almost expect John to break in and to say, okay now, all of y'all, repeat back to me what I just said. Don't you do that with your kids? Just to make sure they're listening? You tell them, you tell them a second time, and then you say, now tell me what I just said. And if they can't do it, what do you do? Let's go over it again. Let's make sure you know this. That's what John is doing here. Why does John do this? Well, I think it has to do with his assertion that the word is God himself. The word did not come out or emanate from God. The word was not God-like. There is a perfectly good and serviceable word in the Greek to say God-like. And John intentionally does not use it. He uses the word God. He wants us to know that the word existed from all eternity. But he is describing God as more than one person. This is the place where we come to begin a study of the great doctrine of the Trinity. If all John had said was that the Word was God, we might have assumed they were the same, that there was only one person. But by saying that the Word was with God, he tells us that there are two persons who are God. And we will meet a third later. Luther, again, puts it so well this way. He says, John says the word was God to prevent Arianism. That is, the doctrine that says that there was a time when the Son was not. That He is a created being. By saying the word was God, that the word was eternal God, we cannot say that. But then he says that John says the word was with God, it prevents modalism, which is a different heresy. It's a heresy that says God exists in one person, but he has three modes or three ways of revealing himself. And that's not what the Bible teaches. This is the problem that we have when we try to teach others about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's every parent's nightmare when a child says, please explain the Trinity to me. And we say things like, well, you know, God is triune, you know, like water. Sometimes it's water, sometimes it's ice, and sometimes it's vapor. Wrong, you're a heretic. That's modalism. Or we say, well, you know, sometimes it's like a man. A man can be a, a husband, a father, and a, a worker. Wrong, you're a heretic. That's not how you describe the Trinity. Anytime we try to give an example of the Trinity, we end up being a heretic. So what do we do? We come to God's Word. When someone says, how do you explain the Trinity? You say, Jesus, the Word, was God from all eternity, but He was with God. And there, John must mean God the Father. He doesn't mean God the Word, because how is the Word with the Word? No, the Word is with God. And so what we have here is the important doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it may seem confusing. The Word was with God, and yet the Word was God. 
there is a distinction being made. And remember, I told you that this book contains a pool deep enough for an elephant to swim in. So if you don't understand all the intricacies of the Trinity, my advice to you is join the club. It's a good membership. Just because we know what God has revealed does not mean we know everything there is to know about God. Well, I think to help us understand how this works, I'm going to let the Jehovah's Witnesses help us. You know them, perhaps. They've come to your house. They come dressed in suit and tie with Bibles and with free magazines they want you to read. And they come, and they come to your door, and they want to talk to you about God. And they want to talk to you about the Bible. And they want to know if you know them. And in this day and age, that is a rare occurrence. Someone that actually comes to you and says, you, would you talk with me about God? And you may, if they've come to your door, you may answer them, well, yes, of course I know about God. I'm a Christian. I read my Bible. I go to church. After all, my pastor just preached a sermon on John chapter 1. And this is where they will start. Well, you know, you don't really understand John 1. They say that the translation, the word was God, really should be. The word was a God. Because in Greek, there is a definite article. Now, for our grammatically challenged, the definite article is easy. It's the word the. The book. The table. The glass. And Greek has a perfectly good word for the. But we distinguish the glass from a glass, an indefinite glass, by the article a or an. But the tricky thing here is, is that as we come to this text, the word the is not there. It doesn't say the word was the God. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses say, aha, don't you see? There's no the, so it has to be an an. It has to be a God, not the God. It's saying that Jesus is sort of pretty much mostly like God, but not all the way. He's different. And then they will spin into a whole series of teachings about how Jesus is the first created being and how Jesus is divine-like, but he's actually closer to the angels than he is to God. And really what they're doing is they're recycling Arianism. If Luther lived today, he would say, John says the word was God to defeat the Jehovah's Witnesses, not the Arians. So, what do we see here? Because there's no the, and obviously we believe in one God. The Jews, of course, profess that from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how do we respond to this? Do you say to me, well, pastor, you need to put me on a crash course of Greek. You need to teach me in two months what it takes people three years to learn so that I can know how to answer this question. Well, I want to give you encouragement. You don't need a crash Greek course. Everyone breathes a huge sigh of relief. How do we respond? First, we see that John intends us to see that Jesus is truly God. He's already told us that the Word was in the beginning. Do you know what was not in the beginning? All creation. Look at verse 3. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through the word. Now, let me, pardon the pun, use some logic with you this morning. If the word is not God, but the word is a God created, how can the word create all things? I mean, all things is all things, right? It does, John doesn't say all things but the Word. He says all things. And he further says that the Word was in existence not only before creation, but before even the beginning, before even time. So John wants us to see this. In the beginning, remember, Genesis 1, God and God only. And remember our verb. Our verb is was. It means existence in the past that continues in the present. Before the beginning started, the word already was. It wasn't coming into existence. This word was that John uses at the beginning and the end of verse 1 is very different from the verb he uses in verse 3. All things were made. That's another verb that means to become, to come into existence. It's an entirely different verb. It doesn't even look the same. It doesn't even sound the same. So there's no confusion here. All of creation came into existence. There was a time when it was not. I mean, you know that's true, right? I know some of you all think you hung the moon. Or maybe better, that your spouse hung the moon. But you know that there was a time before you were. And if you get a little bit uppity about that, there's parents and grandparents to remind you. That you know, back in the days before you were around, we used to, etc. All of creation is like that. But not the Word. The Word always was. Secondly, the grammatical point that the Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to make does not work. Greek is different than English. We have in English the definite article, the, and the indefinite article, a or an. Greek doesn't. Greek has a word for the. It has no word for a or an. So it's not as if in this text, John puts the word a in here, and we ignore it in order to make a theological point. No, the point that the Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to make is, because there's no the, you have to put an a. And it just, it doesn't match up. I don't even have to leave John 1 to show you this. Because throughout the Bible, there are nouns that do not have the definite article in front of them, do not have the in front of them, but they are not indefinite. It's not any old something or a something. It is the something. For example, look down at verse 49 of this chapter. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Do you know what's not before that word king in Greek? Ava. There's no the there. And yet we don't say that Nathaniel was saying, you are a king of Israel amongst many others, or different than the kings of Israel. And to make the point, do you know how the Jehovah's Witness translation translates verse 49? The king. And you can see it over and over again. In verse 6, 
in verse 12, in verse 13, and in verse 18. Each of those instances, we see the word God. There was a man sent from God. Become children of God. The will of God, in verse 13. And in every one of those instances, guess what's not there? The Greek the. And do we put an A in front of any of those? Do we say that there was a man sent from a God? No, we don't. You know who else doesn't? The Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, even when people try to twist God's word, they can't twist it in all of the possible places and ways that they need to to make it false. Because God's word is always true. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It will never fail. So, we have to understand, John is making a distinction here. He wants us to understand who Jesus is. What God was, the Word, that is Jesus, was. He shares the essence of God. If I can put it this way, crudely, all the stuff of God is in Jesus. The substance of God is Jesus, the Word. He doesn't lack anything. He is, as our confession says, the same in substance, equal in power and glory to the Father. And yet, God exists in more than one person. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. Is this difficult to understand? Yes. But just because we don't understand all of the depths of it doesn't mean it's not true. We can easily see what John is doing here. But we can't understand the depths. When I tell you that, when I tell you that you have, for you to have the forgiveness of sins and to be right with God, that you have to believe on Jesus, that only makes sense if Jesus is God. It only makes sense if God exists in three persons. If you want to have hope, Peace and grace. You have to believe what John says about Jesus. Do you remember how I said that this prologue introduces the rest of the book? Well, the rest of the book, in a sense, makes no sense without this prologue. We can only understand what Jesus does if we know who he is. And John tells us that Jesus is very God. He existed before all eternity. Before time began, Jesus was. Jesus is God. And He is with God. We can't understand the gospel without this. How can you make sense of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. If there's not a father and a son, how can you understand the truth that Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of his father without knowing that Jesus is very God, perfect and sinless in every way? How can you understand Jesus' cry on the cross, it is finished, if you don't know that he is the infinite and eternal God, capable of paying for the sins of all his people? 
This prologue reminds us that Jesus is God and we are not. It reminds us that we are to look at Jesus and worship Him. He is worthy of worship. It will take us some time to get there, but these first few verses set up the great truth that we need in verse 17. That grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Are you ready to go on this journey with me? To see the eternal and everlasting God come to earth and become man. To see Him eat and sleep and walk just like you and me. To die just like you and me. But to rise again in victory. Defeating sin and death itself for you and me. This, beloved, is your God. He is the Word. Deity veiled in flesh. The one from the beginning. And as we will see next week, He is the creator and sustainer of all things, including you. He is the hope of every sinner. He is not just God, but if you trust in Him, he is your God. Let's pray.